Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. Father, we thank you for this moment that we get with one another to preach and lead, but Lord, we want to be led by you. So we invite you into this space. We ask Heavenly Father that you would teach us during this time, that we would move close to you, that you would remove those things that might distract our hearts, that you would prepare our minds in such a way, God, where we would see you more clearly. Now unto you, Lord, we offer all things. We offer this moment to you in Jesus' name. Amen. FYI, I think we're getting a little feedback on, uh, on this mic. Uh, the other day, I came in here and uh, I wasn't preaching. And so whenever I'm not preaching, I get out of rhythm. And <clears throat> I had the opportunity to, uh, I was in an Uber and I bring my iPad with me. And my, I think I got on the phone or something, but I lost track and I left my iPad in the Uber. Um, <clears throat> And you, know, and you know when you lose something, you don't remember till like a moment later. So I went to the coffee shop, and I forgot. Well, I look up, and um, I'm like, well, there must be a way to contact this guy. You know what I'm saying? So I start calling this dude, and uh, he ain't picking up. And so I, like, I think I like emailed him. I don't know what I did, but I was trying to contact him. Well, finally, after the third phone call, he picks up. And this dude was like 15 minutes away in the middle of another a ride comes all the way back here while doing the other ride and gives me my iPad. I mean, <laughs> unmerited favor. Um, and the guy was that he was taking was with him and was like excited for me, like, hey, here. I was like, and I'm like you. I was like, thank you. I gave him that good, good tip. You know what I mean? And I just remember thinking, like, oh, he, did, he didn't have to do that. And, you know, when you have good customer service, you're so grateful. I don't mean good customer service like they did what you thought they should do, right? Because you don't really budge when that happens. But when people go above and beyond, you get really excited. You're like, oh. And I wish that we had a lot of examples that we could give where a person did what we want them to do. But good customer service really is about me, isn't it? Like you thought about me. In other words, we would have a tough time sitting here talking about great customer service, but you could talk about all the times that somebody made you upset. Oh, when you were underwhelmed. Like when you went to that restaurant, when we used to go to restaurants, when you went to that restaurant and they weren't paying attention to you, and you were just like, what's up? And especially if they were paying attention to somebody else. I mean, you really got upset. Isn't serving really about someone else, someone thinking about you, like really considering you? In fact, we pay people to think about us. That's why I'm here. I'm here so you think they're getting food for me, they're giving me a ride. You're thinking about me. 
Can you imagine going to the counselor and laying down and them start talking about their mommy issues? Just, so I just don't, and uh, she didn't hug me enough. You're just like, no, this is about me. I paid you to think about me. Service, when someone served you well, it's because they were thoughtful towards you. In many ways, when you have people serving you, when, they're, when you've paid them to serve you, they're beholden to you. This brings us in light of a really particular moment when Jesus washes Peter's feet. Do you remember that? Um, Rasul preached on that in John 13 and 8. Here's what Peter said. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Now, Peter was not objecting foot washing. It wasn't like Peter had this thing where he didn't want his feet washed. He said, you, shall, you won't wash my feet. Because he had a problem with Jesus being in a servant posture. He was uncomfortable with Jesus being beholden to him. We and the people of this time had a tough time with thinking of someone as a great servant, but also as a majestic king. A servant is imminent. You're about us. A king is transcendent. You're about you. We celebrate you. In the same way, Jesus is going to allow them to, uh, okay, Jesus is going to allow them to have this moment where the two are combined. In John 13, 13, he says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. And this was in the moment of washing feet. So in this moment, Jesus is washing their feet, and he says, you think I'm Lord, yet I'm washing your feet. The two are combining, servant and king. It was very difficult for them to combine the two. Servant, king. Jesus is touching on something they're very uncomfortable with. You see, the people in the book of 1 Samuel, they wanted a king. It says in 1 Samuel 8, no, we want, we want there, there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the other nations that our king might judge us and go before us and fight our battles. They wanted someone over them to fight for them, to be above them. And there was something inside of us that wanted a king and wanted a queen. We look at royalty, right? We look at the UK and we're like, they got kings and queens. But we just had a president that we saw people want a king. Because kings aren't just kings, they're celebrities. They are people who are celebrated. We want to celebrate someone because there's something inside of us that wants to know that someone's transcendent, someone's great, someone's way beyond us. Someone can do something that I can't do. But part of this picture in our minds is we want to feel small. We want to see someone as grandiose and big. And in the midst of that, that's why it was so difficult to have the king they would celebrate serving them. It was blowing their minds that they would have the two in one. I saw um, a couple years ago, I saw a video of uh, undercover lift drivers. You seen this? Where they would have like a celebrity lift driver. And it had Shaq doing a, a lift 
right? And um, the woman gets in the car and then she looks up and she's like, oh my gosh, you're like this seven foot person. And it's really weird because this like Shaquille O'Neal is serving me and it's this weird moment. They don't know what to do with it. Here's one of the things that should be very true of us. Christian worship should be unique because we are not just celebrating a king who is this leader. We're not celebrating a prophet. We're actually indebted and we have gratitude to a servant. So he gave us great service, so we're in awe of what he did for us. But he's also a mighty king that's transcendent. Our worship is so unique because we sit and we say, God, I'm in awe of you, but you're present. He is king on a throne, yet the spirit lives inside of us. Christian worship should be unique. It has this unique combination of Jesus both being here and afar. And in this moment on Palm Sunday, we will see Jesus be both humble servant yet also king enthroned. You'll see the people worship and there'll be this frenzy and they'll be so excited about this moment. And Jesus will show how distinct he is as servant king. Jesus has just healed Lazarus. In the healing of Lazarus, you have this unique moment. Jesus is just a little bit outside of Jerusalem when he heals Lazarus. He's in this town called Bethany. In this moment, if you remember, there's a dinner for Jesus where there's Mary and Martha and Lazarus. So you have this uh, crowd moment happening. Now, the crowd that we're about to see in this text is intense because it's two-sided. On one side, the crowd is built up because of the moment with Lazarus. Now, I want you to understand the Lazarus miracle is so unique. There had been other resurrections at that time, but this resurrection was highly different. If you remember from the story with Lazarus, Jesus waits. He waits four days. There had never been a four-day waiting period through resurrection. If you remember, the people would presume that the body hovered over them for three days. The fact that he did it on the fourth day was an indication that this really was from God. So the miracle had spread, and the people were in a frenzy over this miracle. The people followed Jesus from Bethany all the way to Jerusalem. So now you've got this miracle crowd. This miracle crowd is built up because they're so excited about Jesus. But what is happening right after Jesus does this miracle? You have what would be considered the, the other crowd, the Messiah crowd. The Messiah crowd, these are people that are there for Passover. And the people that are there for Passover what scholars say is that it numbered up to 2.5 million people. So this is literally what's happening. 
You've got these people following Jesus, thousands and thousands and thousands of people following Jesus because they've heard of his healings, they've heard of his miracles, and they heard about the Lazarus miracle. And the Lazarus miracle was the one that gave him fame that was over the top. But then you had the Messiah crowd. The Messiah crowd was going to be there anyway, but because the miracle had been done in the proxemics of Jerusalem, the word started spreading. Miracle crowd, Messiah crowd, millions and millions of people. And so it led us to this in John 12. In John 12, 12, it says, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was there. And so this is what you have to understand. This whole situation was a setup. Jesus, it says in John 12, 23, it says the hour had come for him to be glorified. In John 6 and 15, perceiving that they were about to have him come and become king, or forced to be king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. There was literally a time when they were trying to force Jesus to be king and he got away. Jesus, they had attempted to make him king, but Jesus circumvented the moment. Y'all, he set this whole thing up. There was a reason why there was a four-day waiting period before the miracle. There was a reason why he allowed them to go back up to Bethany. There was a reason why he let the crowd build up. This was all timing. Jesus has set up this moment. Jesus was going to receive praise as a king. Why does he do it? Because he set it up where he would have the largest crowd possible to exacerbate the fury of the Pharisees. It was at the intensity of the Pharisees because the Pharisees presumed themselves Welcome back, Holy Ghost. Um, the Pharisees were, were upset because y'all got to understand, for the Pharisees, Passover was their time. You know, some pastors love Easter because it's the big crowd. And for Passover, this was their biggest crowd. But Jesus brought more people there. And now you got people following Jesus and the crowd that the Pharisees would end up leading were now looking at Jesus. And now they're incensed because the crowds are no longer looking to the Pharisaical rulers. They're looking at Jesus. And the Pharisees who wanted to point to Messiah were frustrated that Messiah was there. I don't think y'all understand what I'm trying to say. It would be like me being excited about Easter, but I'm frustrated because people are outside looking at Jesus. You see, the Pharisees loved crowds but hated people. They loved to be able to create this environment because they would do all these things for God, but get the praise themselves. And so what does Jesus do? He exposed their true lover of their heart. 
They hated that they couldn't have the crowds. So it frustrated them to no end. And here Jesus makes the crowd bigger, creates a frenzy even more. The miracle crowd and the Messiah crowd meet all in once. John 12 and 13, it gets even bigger. The moment gets even bigger. John 12 and 13 says, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even King of Israel. This is the Messiah crowd, and they are loud. Understand that they are waving palm trees as a sign of nationalistic hope. They're waving these palm trees as an indication of what happened 150 years earlier under Judas Maccabees. Judas Maccabees took over the Seleucidan dynasty or the army, the ones that had taken over the Jews. Judas Maccabees led them in victory so that they were no longer under their oppression. So to commemorate the victory of Judas Maccabees, they called him the hammer. They stamped an image of palm trees on coins to symbolize the victory. It was Jewish nationalistic hope over their oppressors. So 150 years later, the Jewish people under foreign rule again, under Rome, are now waving palm trees commemorating the victory of Judas. And they're yelling, Hosanna, save now. What they are essentially saying is, save us like Judas saved us. Save us. Save us from Roman oppression. Save us from the tyranny of the Caesar. That's what they're yelling for. And if you add one more element, they, they say, save us, but they also mention, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is from the Jewish halal. These are the books of the Psalms where you would have this um, uh, community worship. That's where we get halal or hallelujah. It is this idea of communal praise and communal worship. So Psalm 118 is where they get that second part from, he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they, they're yelling, Hosanna, save us now. And they're singing from the halal. Now understand, they would be singing this every Passover. Every Passover they would be singing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then in that 150th year, they would add palm branches because they added in their minds, the Messiah is going to come and he's going to take over Roman oppressors. So now they've got the palm branches, they've got the music playing. And this is the thing, the frenzy is getting bigger and bigger because all they're thinking about is military victory. They want a new government and a new governor. That's what's going on in their hearts. That's why the palm trees, that's why the excitement. And in, in reality, the, the halal that they would read from could be sung any way, but the type of frenzy they had actually mimicked when Judas Maccabees uh, had victory, it mimicked Roman victory celebrations. Roman, so a Roman general would come back from defeating a 5,000 person army 
and they would come back with slaves that they overtook from a different kingdom. And so they would come back with all the spoil, all the treasure, and they would come back with slaves. And the people would be there and you would have the entire army go right up to the empire, right at the front of the empire, and they would have this celebration. So the people are doing this, Jewish people are mimicking this because they want to have like a king like the other nations. They're mimicking what those countries would do, but they did it in front of the temple. Amen. This will blow your mind because sometimes religious people try to mimic the world. Amen. So this is what they're doing. But this is the thing. They did this every year. Every year they did this. And they were waiting for Messiah. In waiting, having this parade of sorts, you know what it's like? Now, we haven't had this for quite some time. But when an NBA team wins a championship, I mean, New York definitely hasn't had this in quite some time. But when a, when a team wins, right? When a team wins, they bring the trophy out. And when they bring the trophy out, everyone goes crazy. And this right here is this moment with um, the Toronto Raptors. And there are, people are going crazy. And they lift up the trophy and they lose their minds. Can you imagine every year they would scream and yell Hosanna Hosanna no Messiah every year they did this every year it would be like having a championship parade with no championship every year Think about that. We haven't had a championship since the 70s in the NBA. Imagine every year in New York, we had a parade for a championship we didn't win every year. And then we think we got a winner this year. So we would be so excited. And that's precisely what they thought. They thought Jesus is our trophy champion who's going to take over the government for us. The miracle crowd and the Messiah crowd are so excited about Jesus. But they wanted trophy Jesus, not triumphant Jesus. They wanted the Jesus that would give them a new government. But Jesus did not come to overthrow the external government. He came to be the new governor in your heart, the inner governor. And in so doing, he radically reorientated what people truly desired. In what he did here, what Jesus did, Jesus created a space where he exposed people's hearts instead of changing their surroundings. So what did the people do? The people, do y'all know this? When Jesus was on the cross, the people were given a choice the people were given a choice of who they could have. And they said, you could either have Jesus or Barabbas. And the people chose Barabbas. Now, do you know why Barabbas was on the cross? Do you know why Barabbas, they said he was a thief and a murderer. Barabbas wasn't just a murderer who went around like a serial killer. Barabbas tried to overtake the Roman government. And the people chose Barabbas 
because they felt comfortable having a person who will take over a government than someone who would take over their hearts. And we too still choose Barabbas today. We, we want someone who will change our external conditions but not deal with the filthiness of our hearts. We'll always choose Barabbas. We'll always choose someone that will deal with external conditions versus the internal world that we deal with. We'll always choose that. That's part of our human condition. And Jesus, remember, he's being lauded, celebrated. Hosanna on Monday. Kill him by Friday. Jesus knew their hearts. I want to say to you, saying Jesus knows your heart today too. He knows and exposes the motivations and the agenda of your heart. And he knows that so often we want to see our external conditions change. Amen. Hallelujah. But in many ways, the greatest change he wants to see, the transformation he wants to see is in your heart, is in your affections and what you care for. It is in this moment that Jesus sets this whole scene up. The Pharisees are frustrated. They don't know what to do with themselves. So this is what he does. He creates this moment to essentially rebuke the Pharisees, but he also creates this moment to deal with the Romans, the Roman government that was in power. Do you remember in Luke 19, remember the people are in a frenzy. They're going crazy. They love the crowds. And let me just say this, if I could just have a side note. I hope for those of you that are here, I'm so glad you're here. But y'all, the reason why we do cameras is so that you can keep worshiping. If you don't like watching a camera, I get it. Don't watch the camera. If you don't like doing YouTube, I get it. If you don't like doing whatever, but don't let quarantine take away your worship. Because some, some of us love crowds more than Jesus. That was a commercial break. Luke, Luke 19, the Pharisees are so frustrated. They're so frustrated because they're like, man, what? this guy keeps getting all our praise. So you know what they said? Luke 19, 39, 34. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to shut up. Because they're, 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 because they took away their shine. So they're like, don't, hey, you know, like they're not getting the applause. They're like, oh, it's too loud in here. <laughs> it's like, no, you want them to love you. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now, there's two truths I want you to understand from that. This response to the crowd that the Pharisees have and Jesus' response to them, there's two truths to think about. One, it's true that the rocks would cry out if the people didn't praise him. Like, there is a sense in which um, the cosmic splendor of God will one day bow down to Jesus. Philippians 2 says every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. I believe the entire created order will one day bow to the name of Jesus. There's no doubt about that. But there's something to keep in mind. Many scholars would say that this is a reference to the book of Habakkuk. In the book of Habakkuk, 
the Chaldeans were in charge. And the Chaldeans had taken over through having wicked practices. The Chaldeans had prospered and they had done this in a society by having that at the expense of other nations, particularly of Israel. They had prospered through extortion, charging exorbitant prices, murder, and bloodshed. And in Habakkuk, the city itself had literally been built off of sacrifice and slaughter and abusing people. So Habakkuk, the prophet, gave a word of judgment against the created uh, space there, against the city itself. And he says in Habakkuk 2, 11, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. What it says in Habakkuk there is Habakkuk rebukes them and says, this city in and of itself is a rebuke to you because you built it off bloodshed and slaughter. And so the stones themselves, the buildings you built, the economy you have, it was built off of blood. And what they are saying is the building is a rebuke. The fact that you're building on top of people's lives is a rebuke to you. And so in many ways, what Jesus was most likely speaking to wasn't just the fact that people will shout. He's saying when you build a building and body on bloodshed, the reality is the city itself rebukes you. Injustice makes noise. The reality is when you put yourself in a position where you try to extort people, kill people, and use them, what you built is a monument to your sin. And so when, he sa- when Jesus says the rocks will cry out, it's an indication that this entire city built off of People, the Roman Empire itself is a rebuke, and he is exposing Roman error. Yes, Jesus will be praised, no doubt, but Jesus exposes injustice. And in many ways, he, Jesus, this king, served them through exposing them. I made a Facebook Live this week. And um, I made two, one dealing with grief, but I made one dealing with a gentleman named Derek Jackson, praise God. And I, um, I personally had never heard of this young man. And if you don't know who he is, you're not worse off for not knowing who he is. But he's a relationship expert and he got caught out there. Um, by, he's a relationship expert that cheated on his wife. And uh, he's in a moral job like I'm in a moral job. So if I get up here and I preach the love of God, but then I'm loving somebody other than my wife, I don't think I'm going to keep my job. I know I'm not going to keep my job. Um, so because, I, I, because, I, because I'm not here because of skill, I'm, I'm literally here because of character. Like what I'm, what I'm saying is I have a character-based job. Like I know people who are counselors and their lives are a mess, but they say good things. So they just keep counseling people because their life is not on the line. But, but my job, part of my job description is my family. And if I was cheating on my wife 
and I kept trying to stay in a morally based position, you might celebrate me. You might celebrate me. But God wouldn't be celebrating me. And if God is not celebrating me, then the fact that my life got exposed is God's mercy. It's actually not him. It's not him being mean spirited to me. You see, man's exposition is critical, but God's exposition is mercy. When Jesus exposes the Pharisees, when he exposes the Romans, it's because he loves them. Not because he, see, we, we, Jesus literally exposes you to heal you. But people we expose to open the womb more. We pat, listen, we pass around people's wounds all day online. And then we cancel them, right? Because look how bad they are. But there's a reason why judge shows do so well. Because we look, we love to look at people's miserable lives. We love to talk about how bad they are because it makes us feel a little better about ourselves. And so we love exposure because it makes people beholden to us. But what happens when Jesus exposes? He's a king, but he's a servant. He exposes because he's beholden to us. He's, he's serving us. His exposition is serving. And some of you your greatest threat is being exposed. If I'm found out. And that would actually be God's greatest mercy to you. And I speak to those who have been hiding. Those who have been dodging. Remember dodgeball? Were you good at it? I was profound. I don't want to, I don't want to hold y'all, but, uh, I was gifted. And what is that about? That is, I mean, these guys are throwing balls and I would catch. I remember I caught it one time with my legs. I went down in like the hall of fame in my high school because we understand that game to be about essentially punishment. Cause once you get hit, you're out. And you've been dodging conviction. But this is the thing about conviction. Once you get hit, you're in. Let me, let me, let me help you. If you don't feel conviction, you're out. Like if you're not, if you don't, if you're doing something, you just pop it and lock it and sin. you're like me and sin are just... <laughs> Like you and sin are just, I mean, just chilling and you have no conviction. You're actually out. When the conviction is in the system. No, when the conviction hits, sorry, I'm actually growing in Christ. But when the conviction hits, that's God's arm pulling you back in. And G listen, Jesus set up 
a crowd situation to be several miles away. He set it up to be at Passover. He set it up and he set it up to expose the Pharisees and the Romans so that when he died on a cross, at some point they would feel the conviction. And when Peter preached in Acts chapter two and he said, you did this, thousands of people got saved. Jesus set all that up for conviction. What I'm trying to say is I know that you've been secretly doing your thing, some of you. I know you've been moving and popping and locking, but he's allowed a lot of things. He's allowed a lot of movements. But conviction is coming. And when conviction hits, repentance will happen. Because in Acts chapter 2, thousands of people turn to Jesus. And so I pray that for you, that you know that the conviction of the Holy Spirit is not meant to embarrass you. It's meant to support you. It's meant to convert you and to reel you in. This Jesus is different, isn't he? He's not like us. We're so mean to one another. We judge each other so quickly. And yet we are a mess. Hot mess. I mean, just wonderfully bubbly mess. But the truth, the truth is Jesus, can you believe that Jesus knows everything about us and loves us? That, that is humbling. He is king, sovereign, yet humbly serving. He is fully aware of me, yet fully supports me. How dare we cancel people? I just don't understand. What is that? That's an internet thing. What about the inner spirit thing? What is that? What does he say? He says, I was lost, now I'm found. You were found. You were found. The Bible calls it a calling. You know what a calling is? Calling is when you're going one direction. They say, James, and you turn around. That means someone had to pull you in. You had to hear a voice. Let us have the humility of Jesus even when we see people's junk. Instead of acting like kings and queens and better than people, you're better than no one. How dare you? How dare us? And it's because it's the internet. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I definitely am about to be that dude, that old guy that's just like, in my day, but the internet, <laughs> it, has, it changes people. All right, a lot of this is a commercial break. I'm going to tell you one more thing. I had a guy one time. I was in like this group, this pastor's group, and I posted something. And man, he went in on me. And so I inboxed him. I said, you want to call, you want to talk on the phone? <laughs> and he was like, no, 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 we can just do a lot. But I was like, I don't know you. You are, 
very interesting. <laughs> and I, I said, we can do a FaceTime. I'd like to see your eyes. And, and, and he was like, no, 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 no. And I was like, well, why are you talking like this? He was like, well, you said that. I know, but you're talking. And I just said to him, I grew up in a time where if I said that to someone, <laughs> it, would be, it would be a problem. And I was like, you don't, you don't feel that? He was like, well, I just, man, it's nothing. I was like, I just don't get it. You, you used to get slapped for stuff like that. And I would see it. I would be like, oh, well, I just don't say that to him. But the distance is what I've found it is. And the distance makes us feel like kings. Proximity is our problem. And that's why, that's why you'll never grow as a Christian if you keep remaining distant from people. Because people are easy to judge from afar, but they're, and they're hard to love up close. Don't get me wrong. But when you talk to people and get to know them, you see you have mutual brokenness. Brokenness is hard to judge when you're close. We like to be kings over people. And this is the beautiful thing. He's the servant king. He's both. He sees our junk. He FaceTimes us and says, I see what you're doing. Stop. Or he says, keep doing it. Keep loving those people. He's the servant king. And so Jesus, in order to make sure we maintain a posture of seeing the humility of Jesus and the kingliness of Jesus, this is what he does. In John 12, verse 14, it says he found a young donkey and sat on it. And just as, he, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, uh, I'm going to fast forward through this, but in Zechariah 9.9, that's the prophecy it talks about. It says the king would come on a donkey or a colt. But I want you to notice the amazing thing he does here. Jesus, remember, he's a king, but he's a servant. He's trying to show both. And in this, this is what Jesus does. In Matthew 21, we learn a very interesting thing. Um, the, this moment, the triumphal entry we're speaking of, is seen in all the Gospels. But in Matthew 21, there's something very distinct happened because it says, saying unto him, going into the village in front of you, immediately, Jesus is telling this to his disciples, you'll find a donkey tied up and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. Jesus has a donkey and a colt. And he has them both come to him. The colt is the baby. The donkey is the mother. Now, most scholars would say that this was done so that the colt would come, so that the donkey would, in some ways, persuade the colt to come. Because it's a baby donkey. It doesn't know where it's going. And now the people are in the city and the village are throwing their coats on the ground, preparing the way for their king. Jesus has a full 
female donkey in front of him and a baby colt. And he chooses the colt. Now understand that Remember, this is mimicking Roman warriors who would walk into their triumphal entries and they would be on their war horse so that it could be higher than the people. But Jesus chose a baby colt so he could look the people in the eye. We serve a king that rides baby colts, baby donkeys. His whole posture was to be king yet on the same level. He chose a baby donkey. And in so doing, Jesus is trying to communicate two things. I'm your king, but I'm a humble king. Oh, I'm a warrior, but I'm a humble warrior. And our worship should be different because we have both. We've got a king, the king of our hearts, the one that can take on anyone, but he's so close. Our worship should be full because we have both. And in this, as I close, Revelation 5, we see this twoness. It says, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Look. Y'all see this? Peep this. Do not weep. Look. Look. The lion from the tribe of Judah. See that? Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah. The root of David has conquered so that he's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So that's what John says. Look. But then in verse six, it says, John says, then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne. And the four living creatures among the elders. Look, there's a lion. I see a lamb. Well, which one are you, Jesus? Lion or lamb? He's both. Is he king or a servant? He's both. And our worship should be filled with this beauty and array of a fullness of Jesus. Jesus is so nuanced. He's so beautifully complex. He's so full that we see the greatness of who he is, the grandness of who he is. He's a lion. He's a lamb. I wonder if you'd stand with me. Now, you know what I love about the Psalms? The Psalms literally ask you to lift your hands and to respond in such a way. In the Halal, there's these moments where it has this call and response. And I think in order to see the two-ness of Jesus, we ought to make a call and response. Amen? I feel your excitement. One will say, preacher, And the other will say congregation. But the key is you got to match my energy. Amen? You can do that. He's both. Amen? He's not just servant. He's also king. He's both. He's, well, I'll point to you to help you out. 
He's infinite and transcendent. Let's try that again. He's infinite transcendence. Hold on. He's infinite justice. Hold on. He's infinite glory. He's infinite majesty. He's absolute sovereignty. He's on a throne. He's a lion. He's a rock. He's a mighty warrior. Well, he's a mighty tree of life. He's a servant. Who is he? Jesus. And he's different. And he's worthy of all of our praise. Heavenly Father, right now, we ask that you, your worship would be full in this place. That we would see you not just as one thing, but we would see the humility of Jesus and the kingliness of Jesus. Lord, Lord, would we see the way you love people, the way you care for people, the way you serve people. Let that be something we decide to mimic. The way you are king, the way you lead, let us be that which we worship. Now unto you, God, we put you in your rightful place. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at bridgechurchnyc. Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you and we hope to see you soon.